This is episode 43 of the weekly eye-catching words podcast, published on the 26th of September 2023. Hello and welcome to the Eye Catching Words podcast. This week I'll be taking my look at the week in view, both my personal week and the week in the news. If you don't want to listen to the whole thing, you can find the different sections on the website at www.eyecatchingwords.blog. As well as looking back over the week, I'm going to be reviewing Wes Anderson's latest crazy film with all his trademark trademarks. <laughs> this week I'm going to be reviewing Wes Anderson's latest film Asteroid City and sharing the story of Iris Smith from Morpeth and why she's going to stop reading Private Eye. I'll be reflecting on Novel Ewa Harari's book Sapiens and how it links to the stories in the news of Russell Brand, Rupert Murdoch and the role of elites in society and conspiracy theories. This week's play out is Venus by Shocking Blue. Much as I love Bananarama, I think the original version of Venus is better than their cover version. So you can enjoy that and tell me if you agree or not. So let's start with the week in view. Now, on a personal front, it was uh, an excellent week, a tiring week. I discovered a place called Sky Park Farm, which is on the borders of Surrey, Sussex and Hampshire. Now, Sky Park Farm sounds like it's one of those orbiting agricultural stations in a science fiction film. Sky Park Farm is actually a real place. It's very firmly rooted in uh, the... Uh, it's actually rooted in East Sussex. Uh, and it's... Uh, it's really nice, actually, because they've got about six or seven varieties of deer there, including a variety of Japanese deer. Um, you don't think of the Japanese in connection with deer. Uh, they're lovely. You can buy food and go around and feed them. And there's a really nice walk along the banks of the River Rother. Um, they have a butcher's shop, so it's pretty certain that the deer end up as venison. But the other thing they do have, which is the only reason we actually went there, is a supply of what we call ethical eggs, which is eggs that are produced by a local supplier whose chickens can genuinely run around freely. But most importantly of all, when the chickens reach the end of their useful laying life, they are not thrown in the grinder, but they are rehomed. So here we were, the ultimate green cliche. We drove for 50 minutes in our electric car to get some eggs that we could eat without feeling guilty. Um, the other thing that made my weekend really good was meeting someone called Hagar J. Woodland. Now, Hagar J. Woodland is a rather wonderful singer stroke comedian who also does a bit of podcasting with her sister. Um, she was playing at our local wine bar, Cellar Magnifique, in Woking, 
And it was a brilliantly intimate affair. Uh, two dozen of us sitting there drinking, uh, in, in our case, vegan wine, uh, whilst she uh, sang to various backing tracks, cracked a few jokes, uh, and really talked quite candidly about uh, a few um, aspects of her life, including being stalked by a man uh, many years before who I think, if she, if I remember rightly, had the the nickname of Wolf Spear. Yeah, those real name was Alan, apparently. Anyway, uh, she was absolutely fantastic. Uh, she doesn't have a web page, I don't think, but she does have an Instagram account, of course, uh, and or a Facebook page. So go and Google her, Hagar J Woodland. We also went to Oxford uh, to meet a family member who was. Uh, doing a bit of babysitting for a couple of weeks down in Oxford and uh, as they come from way up north in Yorkshire uh, it was a great opportunity to see them because it's uh, only an hour and a bit's drive away. We had a really nice meal, went for coffee and then we had a wander around the town. Oxford on this occasion was absolutely lovely. You can never tell which version of Oxford is going to turn up because it can be quite a dirty, noisy, smelly town. Although it was busy, it was actually really, really nice because the sun was out, and I swear they've been around giving the, giving all the the nice old buildings uh, a go with the jet wash, just like I do with the patio every year, uh, although on a slightly different scale. Um, Oxford looked absolutely lovely, uh, and uh, we have certain romantic associations with it. For, so for us to go back there was uh, particularly enjoyable. So that was my week. In the news, of course, we had Russell Brand and uh, Rupert Murdoch. Now, Russell Brand, I don't like to preempt the justice system, but all I can say is, even if he's ultimately proved innocent, he is still guilty of being a prize prick. Um, as for Rupert Murdoch, tells you everything you need to know about British politics, the way various politicians reacted to the news of his departure. Um, Jeremy Hunt did a classically slimy Jeremy Hunt thing. I mean, my God, this man is just unbelievable. Uh, you could you could tell that he really didn't like Rupert Murdoch, but was determined to butter him up because the man can still control votes at the ballot box, uh, even though he will be pulling the puppet strings of his right-wing son, who I think is called Lachlan, but who cares? I mean, it's the Murdoch dynasty, isn't it? Um, but the main news story for me was, uh, I was absolutely gutted at the death today of David McCullum. Now, David McCullum was one of the two men from UNCLE. I mean, there were lots of men from UNCLE. I mean, it was a whole organisation, but there were only two that mattered. And that was Ilya Kuryankin and Napoleon Solo, played by David McCullum and Robert Vaughan. These guys were I, these guys were icons of my youth back in the mid-60s. I mean, they were incredibly popular. David McCullum was mobbed and screamed down like the Beatles, you know, by particularly young women who absolutely fancied the pants off of him. Um, my friend Paul and I, you know, Paul was my, uh, one of six kids who lived next door in a sprawling Victorian house. We used to role play the man from Uncle. 
Yeah, and I was Napoleon Solo and he was David McCallum. Although I, I guess I always had a, a bit of a thing for David McCallum. Um, there was just something, it was just, he, he was just so cool. Napoleon Solo was droll. Ilya Kuryakin was cool. Aussie cold, droll and cold. Anyway, David McCallum and I shared a birthday. So uh, he was 90 last week and I was 65. Um, he actually was a really good actor, apart from doing uh, The Man From U.N.C.L.E., which was the thing he was famous for. He did lots and lots of television um, in the UK, and he did some fairly iconic war movies, such as The Great Escape and Colditz and Mosquito Squadron. Um, so uh, I saw uh, his oppo, uh, Robert Vaughan, um, probably about uh, a decade ago, uh, when he before he died, obviously, um, Robert Vaughan was doing uh, Twelve Angry Men on stage uh, in the West End, and I managed to grab him as he was one of my two great heroes um, as he was leaving the stage door, and he was such a miserable bastard. Uh, but he did let me have his picture taken with him. I, I wrote in my blog that day that I had got to meet not the man from uncle but the grumpy old man from uncle i never did get to meet david mccallum but you can't have everything in life but david you were a great hero of mine at rest in peace so let's move on and go on now to a film review of asteroid city Now, Wes Anderson, of course, is a Marmite film director, and you either love him or you hate him. Personally, I love him, uh, although uh, I've never tried to analyse quite why. Uh, the, the question you've got to ask about Wes Anderson, though, regardless of what film you're talking about, regardless of his technical abilities as a director, you have got to ask yourself the question, how does he consistently manage to get so many top rank actors into a film which is not going to do well commercially? I mean, Asteroid City has got Scarlett Johansson, Margot Robbie, Tom Hanks, uh, Adrian Brody, Edward Norton, Matt Dillon, Tilda Swinton, Jeff Goldblum, admittedly only for about five seconds, Steve Carroll, William Defoe, Jeffrey Wright, Liv Schreiber. Uh, with the list Jarvis Cocker um the, the the people he manages to get into his films it really is quite outrageous some of them of course do do appear in practically every film Edward Norton for instance Scarlett Johansson um Adrian Brody they are regulars but this one is I really really enjoyed this one it was shot in the trademark Wes Anderson colours which are it's, it's always vividly or vibrantly shot but he, Wes Anderson goes for broke on this occasion because he produces something which you can only describe as a cross between a cartoon and 50s science fiction kitsch everything is popping eye-poppingly out of the screen coming straight at you and of course 
Asteroid City, it's a film which is set in a desert. It's about a place where people go to uh, speculate on whether there's any life out in the universe where young people who are renowned for being the next generation of brilliant scientists come along and talk about their inventions. Welcome from the United States Military Science Research and Experimentation Division in conjunction with the Larkins Foundation. We salute you. Each year we celebrate Asteroid Day, commemorating September 23rd, 3007 BC, when the arid plains meteorite made Earth impact. The itinerary for this three-day celebration includes a tour of the newly refurbished observatory with Dr. Hickenlooper and her staff, a picnic supper of chili and frankfurters with an evening fireworks display, the viewing of the astronomical ellipses at its peak just before midnight tonight, and finally, the awarding of the annual Hickenlooper Scholarship after Monday's banquet lunch. Now, I'll start by presenting the commemorative medals, but first, I'll do my speech first, which you'll also receive in a folio edition as souvenir. <clears throat> Chapter one. I walked to school 18 miles each morning, milked the goats, plucked the chickens, played hooky, caught fireflies, went skinny dipping in the watering hole, said my prayers every night, and got whipped with a maple switch twice a week. That was life. Chapter two. My father went off to fight in the war to end all wars. It didn't, and what was left of him came back in a pine box with a flag on top. End of chapter two. Next, I went to officer school, and 20 years passed at the speed of a dream. A wife, a son, a daughter, a poodle. Chapter three. Another war. Arms and legs blown off like popcorn. Eyeballs gouged out figuratively and literally. The men put on shows under the palm fronds, dressed as women in hula skirts. That was life. In the meantime, somebody else's story. A man thinks up a number, divides it by a trillion, plugs it into the square root of the circumference of the Earth, multiplied by the speed of a splitting atom, and voila, progress. I'm not a scientist, you are. End of chapter three. Junior stargazers and space cadets, we watch transfixed as you enter into uncharted territories of the brains and spirit. If you wanted to live a nice, quiet, peaceful life, you picked the wrong time to get born. That's the speech. And actually, I have to say, the young actors in the film are brilliant. They, they actually uh, bring a huge extra dimension to this Wes Anderson film. How does the, the, the question Wes Anderson is asking us basically, how does this crazy world that we live in work at all? Even though we know it, it doesn't. Uh, and back in the 1950s, there was a lot of optimism about the scientific future, which we now know as, of course, uh, was misplaced. But there was a lot of stuff about aliens, which some people thought were metaphors for uh, communism. But actually in this movie, the search for alien extraterrestrial life is done very, very nicely, very, very friendly, in a very friendly way. And the, without spoiling the plot, the cast are visited on two occasions by uh, an alien. Um, and the, on the second occasion, the, the hilarious reason why the alien is coming to Earth at all is something straight out of Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It really is very, uh, really a very, very funny uh, story. He even throws in 
a car chase. I mean, Wes Anderson actually does like car chases. I mean, the, the last film the French di that he produced, The French Dispatch, uh, had a really funny car, car chase. You know, but th this one, uh, it's almost a elite motive uh, in the film. Uh, do go and watch it. it. It really is great fun. You won't find out what the meaning of life is. You will at least, I think, come away with the feeling that it is possible for mankind to fail to understand the meaning of life, but do so in a way that is ultimately agreeable uh, and certainly colourful. So let's move on now. Um, the next section is about Mrs Iris Smith from Morpeth, who at the age of 90 has decided to end her subscription to Private Eye. Now, this next section is narrated by one of my artificially intelligent assistants, James. Uh, James, however, may be artificially intelligent, but he cannot say the word naivety. Uh, so when you hear him say naivete, uh, it's because, well, even AI has its limitations. A long-term reader wrote to Private Eye this week to cancel her subscription, saying that she could no longer cope with the avalanche of corruption and the constant flow of depressing news about the state of humanity that it contained. Many of us know how she feels. No matter how good the journalism and how funny and topical the cartoons, Private Eye makes depressing reading. Probably the worst aspect is the way that it documents how some people seem to consistently and serially get away with appalling behaviour. I say probably, but there is also a good case for the worst thing of all being the realisation of Navit. I have had a touching faith in humanity and its inevitable progress, that I suspect has been misplaced for the last 65 years, and it is only since the sewage farm walls burst in 2016 that I have been forced to acknowledge that the shit was there all along and I only endured the occasional whiff, rather than the full force of it. My brother did warn me about this decades ago. We had a wonderful, warm, loving and wise mother who he said, induced a false sense of security in her children. We grew up to be optimists incapable of reading the runes about the real state of the world. The bad things that happened in our lives were mentally catalogued as aberrations from the norm when in fact they were just the visible tip of a vast buried toxic waste site. Mrs. Iris Smith from Morpeth has therefore given up on private eye at the age of 90, and I wish her well in her attempt to ignore the world during her remaining years. For my part, I am torn in several different directions. A bit of me wants to scream outside number 10 and get myself arrested. The more rational version wants to be an activist who does something practical, without any expectation of success, only a faint hope of arresting the decline in moral standards that seems to be all around us. At the moment the dominant version of me is a newly minted 65-year-old, who is trying to use his ample leisure time to make his home into a bulwark against the darkness. I am fixing and improving, and constantly cleaning, making our small Edwardian house into my own personal haven. It is a moral bunker mentality, a conviction that I can ignore all the bad news as long as I keep my house in order and hang on to my integrity. But of course as John Dunn observed, no man is an island, and I cannot shut myself off from the world, 
for like unnatural fog in a horror movie it will find a way past my defenses and invade my consciousness, preventing me from achieving a peaceful state of mind. I have people in my life that I love and who cannot yet turn their back on this declining age. Their pain calls me to action. Even if I could ignore all the evil that exists in the world at large I would always answer their calls for help. So even if I do create a perfect home that is a cure for weariness, fear, and sadness, I am always going to have to go back into the open air to see what the wind and sky are doing. Thank you, James, for that spirited attempt to be my mouthpiece for a few minutes. Now I'd like to talk about conspiracy theorists and elites. Now, I've already mentioned Russell Brand and Rupert Murdoch in this podcast, so I'm going to mention them again. I originally entitled this piece, Conspiracy Theorists Are Right, Kinda. Um, I'm going to kick off by quoting from Novel Yuval Noah. Why does this guy have such a difficult name? Yuval Noah Harari's book, Sapiens, which is several years old now, but which suddenly occurred to me because it is a very good, uh, it sets out really well how mankind came to be predominant or the predominant species. This is a quote from Sapiens as follows. <clears throat> the stress of farming had far-reaching consequences. It was the foundation of large-scale political and social systems. Sadly, the diligent peasants almost never achieved the future economic security they so craved through their hard work in the present. Everywhere, rulers and elites sprang up, living off the peasants' surplus food and leaving them with only a bare subsistence. These forfeited fuel surpluses fueled politics, wars, art, and philosophy. They built palaces, forts, monuments, and temples. Until the late modern era, more than 90% of humans were peasants who rose each morning to till the land by the sweat of their brows. The extra they produced fed the tiny minority of elites, kings, government officials, soldiers, priests, artists, and thinkers who fill the history books. History is something that very few people have been doing whilst everyone else was ploughing fields and carrying water buckets. So that's the quote from Sapiens. And there it is again, that word elites, used appropriately here by Noah Yuval Harari. But when used elsewhere, it's probably that single most valuable weapon in the conspiracy theorists lexicon. It was used in the last week by both Rupert Murdoch and supporters of Russell Brand to discredit their detractors. The irony, of course, is that the accusation comes from people who are themselves elite. Brand is a very famous, wealthy, self-styled outsider who lives in a four million pound house and was garnering a million pounds a year from his YouTube videos alone until his channel was suspended. Murdoch's business empire, which he's passed over his son to run, is worth over £17 billion, although it punches far above its substantial fiscal weight in terms of its toxic social and political output. And it has brought mankind such great benefits over the last quarter of a century as the election of Donald Trump, Fox News 
and a two decade long telephone hacking scandal. But it raises the interesting question of what membership of the elite actually consists of at this turning point in history now that we now find ourselves at and indeed what the modern equivalent of the peasant is. I think it's fairly easy to define on a personal level but trickier to categorise. Someone sweating in an Amazon warehouse, emptying our bins or bouncing along on a moped as a delivery driver in the low pay gig economy is almost certainly in Harari's worldview at the disenfranchised and sweating to survive end of the spectrum. If you're salaried above a certain point and not doing something useful to society, for instance, working as a lawyer or marketing manager, or like me, are economically comfortable and almost retired, then you're definitely in the elite category. Or are you? Who is useful to society and worth paying for from the modern equivalent of the agricultural surplus? I would argue that artists and nurses are valuable, that footballers and YouTube influencers are not. Other people may disagree. Sapiens is well worth a read and a regular reread as it debunks in very simple language our self-image as a species. We are not as clever as we think we are and we are definitely the worst thing that ever happened to planet Earth and its other inhabitants. Nearly everything we've invented in the last few millennia since becoming farmers, from religion to the global corporation, has the single function of sustaining an elite and controlling the masses. So yes, the conspiracy theorists are right, but they too are firmly entrenched in the ranks of the elite and doing very nicely out of it, thank you. What we really need now is someone to start a conspiracy theory about how conspiracy theorists are actually part of an organised global network that helps sustain the existing world order by appearing to attack it when in fact they are helping to maintain it. Alice in Wonderland, eat your heart out. That's all from me for this week. I'm going to leave you with Shocking Blue, a 1960s band who were famous for their version, the original version of Venus, which was most famously covered by Banana Rama, as I mentioned in the intro. Now, I'm a great fan of Banana Rama. Um, they have covered some very good songs and they've done them in great elan. Uh, but this version of Venus by Shocking Blue has a rawness to it, which I really, really like. So uh, enjoy and see you again next time. Summer
If you've enjoyed this podcast, please check out the website. You can find this at www.eyecatchingwords.blog. If you want to contribute an article, want to be interviewed, or just have an idea that you think we should explore, please send this into the email address that you can find on the site. You can also leave voice comments on Spotify. The Eye Catching Words podcast is published every Tuesday on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Music. This podcast was recorded, assembled and edited in Hindenburg Pro. The script and elements were mapped out using MindNode. Incidental music and sound effects were supplied by Soundstripe, and voiceovers were produced using Revoicer.